welcome to a Friday night edition of Tisky Sour. We are less than 24 hours away from the start of Labour Party conference. I had been speaking about it as if it would be a somewhat depressing affair. I think, in fact, it could be quite entertaining because Keir Starmer's Stalinist manoeuvres are coming a cropper. I'm joined by Ash Sarkar to talk you through all the big issues we are going to see debated over the coming five or so days. Ash, are you excited to have your your few days on the beach? Well, you know what? My feelings were much like yours. I was going in absolutely dreading it. And I've got to say, there's something kind of amusing about watching Keir Starmer go into his first proper conference as leader, just marching in, stepping on rakes like Sideshow Bob. Rakes which he'd placed there, you know, there's completely <laughs> so, so many unforced errors going into this this conference. Anyway, we don't we don't need to give you too much of a preview because it's all coming up. Before we get going, you know the score. We like to know your thoughts, your comments, your questions. Please do um, tweet on the hashtag TiskySour or comment under the YouTube video or on the Twitch stream and subscribe to the channel. Labour Party conference starts tomorrow in Brighton. And as we discussed on Wednesday's show, the big showdowns will be on rule changes. Principal among those is a proposal from Keir Starmer that the one-member, one-vote system for electing leaders, which elected both him and Jeremy Corbyn, would be replaced by an electoral college where members have only one-third of the vote, the other two-thirds going to MPs and trade unions, respectively. Since Wednesday's show, the backlash to those changes has been growing. Among leading Labour politicians, Sadiq Khan has refused to back the move. Asked about the plans on Thursday, Mr Khan said, I've got to be frank, as the Mayor of London, internal party rules isn't at the fore of my mind. I haven't had a chance to look into the changes being considered. Next came the leader of Scottish Labour, Anna Sawa. Paul Hutchin at the Daily Record reported, Exclusive Scottish Labour leader Anna Sawa is v unimpressed with Keir Starmer's conference plan to change leadership rules. I don't think it should be our focus. It is certainly not my focus. I'm going to conference to talk about the issues I care about. Finally, today, Sawa and Khan were joined by Angela Rayner. She let it be known to The Guardian that she opposes Keir Starmer's intended rule changes. The Guardian report that she has expressed privately to Starmer her opposition to the plans. Of course, as deputy leader, Rayner has a seat on Labour's NEC, as well as being a generally influential person in the party. More important than any of these politicians, though, are the trade unions. That's both due to the seats they occupy on the National Executive Committee and the votes they control at the conference floor. They have half of the votes. On that front, there was interesting news from Unison this morning. Their Labour Link Committee, which is the the part of their union which is elected to input into Labour Party processes, a majority have come out and said, we are against the electoral college. We are against these moves proposed by Keir Starmer. So if everything is working properly um, in, in unison, according to their internal democratic norms, then unison, one of the big unions, should be voting against Starmer's plans. Perhaps most significantly, Keir Starmer today had a meeting with representatives from all of the trade unions. It's in a meeting known as TULO. It apparently didn't go very well. This is Gabriel Pogrand from the Sunday 
times. Union source emphasizes it's not over till it's over, but seems Starmer faces humiliation over electoral college reforms if he brings to vote. Trade union and Labour Party liaison organization, or TULO, meeting was bad. Nobody defended Starmer. Even moderate unions look uncertain. I'm told that Starmer claimed he was trying to find a consensus but wouldn't actually address the issues. He was instead bollocked. Source says unions one by one claimed they hadn't been consulted by leader's office ahead of reforms, with even head of Chulo saying they weren't involved in discussions. Showing an awful lot of arrogance there from Starmer and his team, just trying to push this through the trade unions, push this through every part of the Labour Party without any consultation. Sienna Rogers from Labourlist saying a similar thing about that Tulo meeting. Um, she said Tulo meeting being described as a car crash for Starmer. Now, as we speak, there is currently an NEC meeting taking place. We had expected there to be a vote on whether to recommend the Electoral College rule change to conference, but we understand such a vote has now been postponed. That could be voted on tomorrow, Sunday, or never. That's how the Labour Party works. Finally, if the NEC does ultimately pass the rule change, it will have to be ratified on the conference floor. On that front, one can assume party staff aren't overwhelmingly confident about its chances. That's because they're currently busy purging conference delegates to try and swing it. This morning, John McDonnell tweeted the following. Reports coming in of several constituency delegates to conference receiving last-minute notices from Labour HQ, threatening disciplinary action and barring them attending Labour Party conference. It's opening up the party bureaucracy to accusations of vote-fixing beyond farce. Ash, I want to get your thoughts on this. Um, I suppose John McDonnell calling it a farce seems quite apt, doesn't it? This is all a complete shit show and as we said in the introduction seems to be a massive unforced error from from Keir Starmer. I mean it's hard to see how this could go worse for Keir Starmer because one of the main things he promised with his candidacy was a degree of competence of organizational and bureaucratic competence. He was the guy who used to be DPP. Do you remember that really cringy hype that he got from somebody which was he can chair a meeting he can <laughs> draft a minute these might seem like small things but ultimately they're very important that reputation has completely disintegrated over the last few days it's quite clear that the more ambitious uh members of the labor party uh Angela Rayner, of course, Sadiq Khan, um, Anas Sarwa, who I think all have uh, potential ambitions for bigger jobs than the ones that they've got now. They've realized that how this looks to the public and also to the rest of the party is, you know, quite silly and, you know, petty, um, that it looks very myopic. These things aren't important, particularly when uh, the country is faced with a cost of living crisis and energy crisis, and potential fuel and food shortages as well. Um, so this looks really, uh, you know, small, petty, unimportant in comparison with what the country is actually facing. Also, furthermore, it's being so bungled in its execution. It's hard to think of, you know, the kind of slick uh, political machine of Tony Blair cocking something up this badly. Um, there was obviously the the bungled attempt to take out Tom Watson in the Corbyn years, but I don't think that there was anything quite as embarrassing as this, uh, where being hyped up by you know Peter Mandelson, 
and Matt Pound and whoever else it is from the Labour right, Keir Starmer goes in having drastically overestimated the strength of his own hand, thinking that he could go in and force a rule change on unwilling and unsupportive unions uh, and without a majority of support in the NEC. So you've really got a question. The political nous and strategic basic strategic competence of a man who can go in and make this kind of decision a key question or the two key questions here this is from saul with a fiver thank you very much if keir starmer can't get his changes passed why did he push them incompetence or is there a reason why the labor right needs to get them passed now that is the million dollar question really um it's potentially all of those things so i mean the official story from starmer's operation what they're briefing out is that since the Conservatives are, are suggesting they might have a general election in 2023. Then they have to get the rule changes out of the way at this conference. So next conference, they can be talking about the, the issues that matter. The idea there being that whenever you debate internal party rules, you take a bit of a hit. So you should do that as far away from an election as possible. Obviously, the more cynical um, explanation for why it's happening now is because they're worried that if there is that snap election and Keir Starmer loses, then he's going to have to resign and they want to make sure that no left winger can replace him. You could go even further and say potentially he wants to resign before a general election. And so they're trying to fix the rules for when he does that. He Maybe he will feel more free to resign when there isn't the danger of a left winger replacing him. The incompetence element here does seem quite significant, though, because I assume if he'd realised it would have gone like this, he wouldn't have announced earlier in the week that he wanted to reintroduce the Electoral College. Because I imagine, you know, we often hear that most of the big unions have elected leaders which are supportive of Keir Starmer, GMB, Unison, Unite, the one big outlier there. So I assume he thought he could push this through quite easily. It hasn't worked. And what this reminds me of, actually, is his attempt to to, to demote Angela Rayner. That, that was a point in time where his team and Keir Starmer himself judged that that was a time after the loss in Hartlepool to stamp their authority on the party. And they completely underestimated their opponents. They thought that Keir Starmer was all powerful in the Labour Party. They tried to decapitate his main rival, who was also the elected deputy, or still is the elected deputy leader of the party. And it blew up in their faces. And, you know, I'm really pleased to see that it seems to be happening again. I mean, it could be the case. Let's not, we cannot declare victory. It could quite easily be the case that the trade unions are sort of, or you know, at least some of them are, are making a bit of a show of this, saying, look, we're standing our ground. We're not going to be pushed over by Keir Starmer. And then ultimately they will, um, you know, accede to his request. Maybe there'll be some sort of compromise deal in the next couple of days, which will equally lock out someone of, of Corbyn's ilk, because it does seem like there are lots of powerful people in, in those moderate trade unions or the trade unions where it wasn't a left winger who was elected most recently, who, who don't want to see another socialist campaign group MP be elected leader. But it's definitely not going as smoothly as Keir Starmer had hoped. Ash, if you were a betting woman, I don't know, maybe you are, but um, let's assume you are. Would you bet on Starmer passing a change to the leadership rules over the next few days? I don't think that his hand is strong enough, quite frankly. I think that while certain unions might want to do a bit of horse trading to sort of hold their support for the rule change hostage in return for, you know, some kind of, you know, policy that they'd like to see implemented or not implemented, as rumour has it, with regards to the GMB and the Green New Deal. While that could be the case, I think that Starmer's position is so weak that 
there's not really so much of a disincentive to humiliate him. Do you know what I mean? Whereas the usual rule would be, well, you know, even the unions wouldn't want to see um, a leader's authority uh, fatally wounded by denying him um, a rule change. But when he clearly doesn't have confidence in his own leadership or chances at a general election, is in a panic trying to secure a route for a successor who is from the party's right wing, then why would any union say, well, let's spare his blushes and his reputation? Mm. I mean, it is also worth saying the rule change he is trying to do, because, you know, in, in Corbyn's era, there are often sort of rule change pass or changing the threshold instead of 15 percent of MPs, you need 10 percent of MPs or, you know, whatever the details were. What Keir Starmer is proposing is a fundamental change to the leadership rules. And the last time that happened, when Ed Miliband did it in, in 2014 and introduced one member, one vote, there had been a whole review. It's called the Collins Review. So there was this whole review where all different parts of the Labour Party were consulted. Someone draws up a review. There's a special conference. You know, this wasn't something that was just decided in the dead of night in a smoky room. And then everyone was everyone's hand was forced. So it, it's very unusual to try and push through something this fundamental without having consulted anyone first. And I think it just does show the complete arrogance of Keir Starmer and also his, I suppose, his his inexperience when it comes to politics. We saw that already, as I said, when he tried to demote Angela Rayner. Anyway, the one thing I can say is that it has made you know me much more excited about conference than I was previously. So we're going to have some interesting shows over the next few days. Um, let's go to our next story. Keir Starmer's much-anticipated 12,000-word essay was released on 11 p.m., on Wednesday night, the pamphlet published with the Fabian Society pledged to repair the public finances and ended with the 10 principles that Keir Starmer said would guide his leadership and bring about what he calls a contribution society. The 10 principles are, we will always put hardworking families and their priorities first. If you work hard and play by the rules, you should be rewarded fairly. People and businesses are expected to contribute to society as well as receive. Your chances in life should not be defined by the circumstances of your birth. Hard work and how you contribute should matter. Families, communities and the things that bring us together must once again be put above individualism. The economy should work for citizens and communities. It is not good enough to just surrender to market forces. The role of government is to be a partner to private enterprise, not stifle it. The government should treat taxpayer money as if it were its own. The current levels of waste are unacceptable. The government must play its role in restoring honesty, decency and transparency in public life. And finally, we are proudly patriotic, but we reject the divisiveness of nationalism. Those are the 10 principles that Keir Starmer say are going to guide his leadership and any government which he leads. There are a few principles there that are you know, potentially worrying by focusing on playing by the rules. Are Labour laying the ground for an attack on so-called benefit cheats or illegal immigrants, people who don't play by the rules? And by speaking of government spending as if the state were a household, is he opening the door to more austerity? It might be too early to say. These are all very vague, ambiguous statement. What people from all sides of the political aisle have noticed, though, is a problem not with what the list of principles includes, but what it leaves out. Namely, anything to distinguish Labour from the Tories. ITV's political editor Robert Peston tweeted, the striking thing about Keir Starmer's road ahead, his 12,000 word 
profession of fundamental beliefs, is that it is not impossible to imagine Boris Johnson saying almost all of it, apart from the sentence about giving more power to trade unions to recruit and organise, which is not to argue that Starmer's Labour and Johnson's Tories would do the same thing, but it shows that words are not the dividing line in today's politics, and that is more of a problem for an opposition for a government, or for an opposition than for a government. Even more notable than the tweets from Peston was one from Gavin Barwell. Barwell is a former Tory MP, former Tory cabinet member, and served as chief of staff to Theresa May. In response to the essay, he said, just read Keir Starmer's 10 principles. I agree with eight of them and partially agree with the other two. This either means I am in the wrong party or they are so bland that they don't tell us anything useful about what he would do if he became prime minister. Ash, some people might argue this is a strength of an essay. You know, even the, the opponents are forced to agree with what Keir Starmer has said. Other people might say that was only possible because the, the essay was so vacuous. Well, the essay is entirely vacuous. When you read it, all 14,000 words of it, it's been focused group to the extent that you have a kind of emotional story and images which kind of work as long as you don't think too hard about them. And then the minute you apply any kind of critical interrogation, the whole thing begins to fall apart because it's not so much an essay, a statement about Keir Starmer's theory of the world or his theory of change. It's really a set of um, images and vibes, right? It really is 14,000 words of vibes only, which might be appropriate in a kind of party political broadcast where it is just about kind of emotions and images and then the Labour Party logo slathered on top of it. But for an essay which is really articulating who you are, what you're about, what your view of the world is and how you're going to change it, um, it's, it's completely and utterly inadequate. So I think that this idea of, well, you could imagine Boris Johnson saying any of this stuff. You've got Gavin Barwell saying, well, I agree with eight of you know the 10 principles and two I kind of agree with as well. Um, I think that shows how vacuous Keir Starmer's so-called vision, his agenda setting essay really is. Um, I think there were some phrases in there which particularly stood out to me as one of those things, which is, you know, very much a vibes only kind of phrase. And for me, the one which kept coming back to me was this notion of the hardworking families. Um, whenever Keir Starmer's talking about family life, the defining feature of it is hard work. Now, that is something which might pass an initial focus group test where you give a list of words to people and you go, what do you think about this? And it's like, oh yeah, families should work hard. They should work hard. But who actually in their heart of hearts thinks that the defining feature of family life is work rather than love or quality time or affection or mutual support or whatever it might be? Um, so there are these things which are very kind of flimsily held together um, by a kind of uh, quite shallow uh, sense of social conservatism, an appeal to an imagined English decency. But ultimately, I've got nothing of real substance uh, to say to anybody, least of all the voting public. Mm, and I, suppose, I mean, uh, the real danger there is, because uh, you could, I think, probably, I mean, I, I don't have actually that much conviction when I say this, but <laughs> let's try this. I think you probably could make a sort of progressive... Um, prospectus around things like hardworking families, but you'd have to be very, very clear as to what you are opposing them to. You know, what, what are you opposing hardworking families to? Are you opposing them to the rich and powerful and tax dodgers? Or are you opposing them to families that don't work hard, families on benefits, maybe families who um, have disabled members who aren't able 
to go to work, right? If you don't do that work, if you don't be very clear and specify what you are contrasting these hardworking families to, then the Tories, the media and people's, you know, that's going to activate in people's minds these ideas which we have been primed with for, for years, which is that the big opponent of hardworking families is families who don't work hard. It's, it, you know, it's not the tax dodging, wealth extracting, wealthy, it's the, the benefit cheats. And there is sort of very little in in anything Keir Starmer has, has said in quite a long time, actually, probably since the leadership election, to suggest that he is, um, you know, very averse to drawing upon a frame whereby you are pitching hardworking families against non-hardworking families. I mean, following the rules, especially, I think is, because uh, I mean, that for me really just invokes Pretty Patel talking about migration. You know, these people, they might have come over the channel and they might be desperate, but they haven't followed the rules. They should have done it in a in a way that that followed the laws like the rest of us do. I do find it hard to see how that could be progressive. And also getting the nation's public finances in order. I mean, there's just it, it's a million miles away from even centre-left politicians elsewhere in the world. So on the same day that Keir Starmer published that essay, Joe Biden tweeted, I'm sick and tired of the super wealthy and giant corporations not paying their fair share in taxes. It's time for it to change. Now, I saw some people sort of mock Joe Biden because they're saying, look, you're the president. You're the president. You're not just a sort of social commentator. Do something about it. At the same time, though, this does show to me how out of step Keir Starmer is with, with the times. It's like this, this essay could have been written in, in the early 90s, and he hasn't woken up to the fact that the world has fundamentally changed since then. What would you have put in a 12,000-word essay, Ash? What would I have put in a 12,000-word yeah. essay? I would be like, do absolutely anything else other than read this. <laughs> um, there's a reason why like most undergrad and even master's dissertations are capped at eight to 10,000 words, right? Nobody needs to read something 12,000 words long. But I think that this is kind of precisely the point about why there is such a lack of authenticity within this essay. It's because it's not actually about Keir Starmer communicating with the public. It's not even about Keir Starmer communicating with the Labour membership. What this is supposed to do is signal to political editors and lobby journalists that this guy is serious, he's sensible, and Labour aren't just a party of wrong-uns anymore. So one of the ways in which I described it for a piece that I wrote was that it is one half of a ventriloquist's act and the other half of it is, you know, some new statesman columnist cooing about how serious and prime ministerial this guy really is. It's Labour, but not as you know it. Um, the problem is, is that it's so boring and it's so verbose and bloviating and contentless that even people who'd really expect to rally behind this mid-90s view of the world are kind of turned off by it. You know, Tony Blair didn't put out 12,000 word essay. He passed out cards at conference, which were like this big with like three pledges on it. Um, that's why he was a more skillful communicator. Say what you like about Jeremy Corbyn when he was articulating himself, he wasn't necessarily the king of brevity. You'd ask him to give a speech and he'd always start somewhere around the chartists and then move forward to the present day. But it was very clear what he was about. It was, you know, taxing the wealthy, fund public services, don't bomb the Middle East. These things were very, very clear. Whereas Keir Starmer has taken, you know, 12,000 words to tell us absolutely nothing. It's a waste of everybody's time. On the same day that Keir Starmer released his 12,000 word essay on what he stands for, one of the co-authors of the pamphlet released his own piece in The New Statesman. 
Philip Collins was a speechwriter to Tony Blair, and he's now helping Starmer with his conference speech. The subheading of the essay in the New Statesman was, in a changed world, the party is unsure quite what or who it stands for. Now, it's potentially not a great look for a speechwriter to admit they don't know what their own party stands for. Um, interesting choice. But I want to focus on another bit of the essay because Philip Collins, now working with Keir Starmer, has a go at a member of Starmer's shadow cabinet, Ed Miliband. The thrust of Collins' argument is that Labour has to drop its commitment to socialism to appeal to the electorate. And he is especially critical of the shadow business secretary for this intervention he made on a recent episode of Newsnight. It was an emergency. We would be investing in the green recovery. We would be borrowing well, to invest because it makes that. sense to Ed, do that. I'm going to put to you at your yeah. conference, the Labour Socialist Grouping is going to ask Labour to vote for their Green New Deal motion. You'll be aware of this. It sees energy, water, transport going back into public I'm ownership. We're in favour of common ownership. Yeah. So you'll Keir, vote for that. Keir Starmer you'll said vote, that. You'll well, vote there's yes always the management. There's, there's, always, there's always management of these things at conferences. But yet, I can tell you, we're in favour of common ownership. Energy, Absolutely. water, transport all goes back into public ownership well, under Labour. Is that right? Wait for the conference, but but I Keir Starmer said in his leadership campaign he was in favour of public ownership in those areas. He ha we haven't changed that commitment. We haven't. Wh and why is that? Let me just explain this to you. Because in particular, in relation to natural monopolies, if we're going to make this green transition, then public ownership is the right way to go. And okay. we, we don't resolve from those commitments. So we may see the Labour front bench voting in favour of that. that on, we may well on see that. There's, okay. there's always, it's always messy done. these Let, things. Let's Philip Collins called that performance on Newsnight a strangely fiery display. But what's his concrete problem with it? Interestingly, Collins doesn't criticise the policy of nationalising Britain's utilities, and he notes that even the Conservative government are now considering bringing any of the bigger energy companies into public ownership were they to fail. Indeed, Collins says he personally has no particular ideological opposition to public ownership. Instead, Collins' opposition to Ed Miliband is political, because while common ownership might be a good thing, it is never something that should be proposed by Labour. What does he mean by this? Let's take a look at the quote in question. So Phillips writes, The reason Ed Miliband is wrong is that politics is unsymmetrical and unfair. When the business secretary discusses an intervention in the energy market, it is a little surprising. It sounds like an exception to a rule that is being breached because the circumstances are indeed exceptional. So that's when a Tory does it. When Labour says the same thing, it sounds like the arrival of the ideological cavalry. The same thing happened with the price cap, which sounded like the essence of Labour when Ed Miliband proposed it, and a one-off aberration when Theresa May did. This is not about whether it is right or wrong. It is about the political signal that is emitted. Kuateng comes across as acting briefly out of character for reasons of temporary pragmatism. The Labour Party sounds like its moment has finally arrived. The long and the short of this argument from Philip Collins is that while left-wing policies might work, they can only be introduced by the Tories because if Labour were to argue for them, it would seem too ideological. Ash, this is a guy writing Keir Starmer's conference speech, which presumably we'll hear on, on Tuesday or, or Wednesday, and he's saying that only the Tories can implement progressive policies. What I mean, look, reason does I that give like anyone to vote for Labour? Look, there's a reason why I call him the wrong Philip Collins. Do you know what I mean? Like, I just, I just, I don't, I don't think that he's, he's particularly uh, insightful. That's, that's my experience of his work. Um, but what he has laid out is a strategy 
for the country to keep moving inexorably rightwards. So you praise the Tories whenever they do anything the slightest bit uh, progressive, whether that's you know nationalization or an energy price cap. You say nothing when they do things which are perfectly uh, predictable, for instance, implement hostile environment environment policies, uh, dish out taxpayers' cash to their old uni mates or cut vital funding from public services. And then what, what do Labour do in order to, uh, I guess, confound expectations? They just come out with right-wing policies because it makes them seem pragmatic meters of the moment. So should Keir Starmer come out in favor of torture and capital punishment. Uh, would it have been better if Diane Abbott, instead of taking a principled stance against the hostile environment, said, you know what, lock them all up, throw away the key, and if you can't do that, deport them. Um, it's, it's a really silly worldview because it forgets that you are actually fighting for a set of politics. The ultimate goal isn't simply do you get a two-point bounce in this week's YouGov. It's to implement changes that you think will transform the country for the better. And that means making a case for the things that you think will transform the country for the better. Simply traipsing, traipsing along rightwards in the hope that you're one day going to get a pat on the head from the Daily Mail or the Times is silly. Um, and we've also seen how it's, it's bitten Keir Starmer on the arse, going into the pandemic saying, well, we're going to support this government, we're not going to oppose for opposing sake. It meant that when he did come out and criticise the government, you had the political journalist who had once cooed over him for, you know, writing something in the Telegraph or writing something in the Daily Mail going, oh, but you said you support the government. Haven't you thrown away your right to criticise them? So it's, it's completely silly from a strategic point of view. But again, I wouldn't expect anything else from the wrong Philip Collins. Mm. I mean, it, it is really worrying to me, this kind of thing, because this is, you know, this is why under New Labour, we ended up with everyone thinking the real problem in society was asylum seekers and benefits cheats, because the Labour Party thought, oh, look, the people who like public services and who like immigrants, we've already, you know, they've got nowhere else to go. So we're going to focus all our attention on saying we're tough on asylum seekers and we're, we're tough on, on benefit cheats. If you read the book by um, Philip Gold, another, another wrong and Philip, he was one of the pollsters for Tony Blair who do all of these focus groups and say, no, they want you to be more right wing. They want you to be more right wing. And so Labour, even though they were in government, even though they had the, the, the levers of power and they could have done things like regulate the Murdoch press. Instead, what they did was pander to it and say, we, we keep ha we, we have to, um, uh, you know, speak to our vulnerabilities and their vulnerabilities were always that they weren't right wing enough. So they'd move to the right. Then that would move public opinion to the right and they'd have to move to the right. Again, it's actually internal to the logic of what Philip Collins says, I think, because essentially what he's saying there is that when the Tories propose a left-wing policy, it makes that policy seem reasonable, right? So when Kwasi Kwarteng says we might have to, um, I mean, he hasn't used these words, but if those gas companies fail, they have essentially said the administrators will come in and for a while it will come into public ownership. They, they don't want to just do a bailout. Um, it, it, what, what Philip Collins is saying is that when Kwasi Kwarteng says that, because he's right wing, people think, oh, that must be reasonable then. If the Tories are proposing this left wing policy, that means it's reasonable. Well, the converse of that works as well. If Labour are saying the public finances are in a dire strait, then that must be reasonable. You know, when Boris Johnson says the public finances are in a dire strait, so we need austerity, people by this point in time say, oh, this is just the same old Tories. Why should I believe them? When Keir Starmer stands up and says, they say, oh, well, even the Labour Party agree. Now, this this is what it means to mo to move public opinion to the right. You, you're, you're confirming all of the Tories' 
prejudices and saying, oh no, we back those as well. We back those as well. It's really, it's really, really depressing, especially as, you know, they'll say, oh, this is just a cynical tactic to, to get into power. One, if you get into power on, on that politics and you end up implementing right-wing policies, as we saw with New Labour too, they're probably not even going to get into power. So all we're going to have is an opposition who reinforces all of the Tories' attempts to move British public opinion to the right and then lose anyway. There's a real, there's a real lose-lose situation there. Let's go to some comments. Nicola Curtin with a fiver on YouTube says, what do you think the chances are of David Evans not being confirmed as general secretary this weekend? Um, I could be wrong, but I'd say very, very low. Um, so there is going to be, I think it's going to be this weekend, potentially tomorrow, um, a, a vote on whether David Evans should be confirmed. It's in the rule book that the NEC appoints a general secretary and then it has to be um, yeah, confirmed by conference. Normally that's been a complete formality. This time around there's going to be a card vote, which means that they have to they have to count um, every, you know, the number of people in each CLP, what the delegates represent, and in the unions, what each union represents. So it means doing it very properly. Um, normally this would be a formality. Um, I think it's unlikely that enough of the trade unions would vote against that because you've got to remember it's the NEC who appointed David Evans, including you know, a majority of the trade union reps on the NEC. So if they were to vote against him keeping the job, they would essentially be saying, we got it wrong. Um, I think it would, it, they'd probably see that as, as creating too much um, disquiet. Also, I think it does matter, especially for, for the trade unions, they like things to be done properly. So one of the reasons why Keir Starmer's having such problems with this electoral college change is that the trade unions like we want to be consulted about these things we like things to work as they are supposed to work Keir Starmer hasn't put forward this rule change in a manner by which you know the norms of the Labour Party suggest you should whereas the norms of the Labour Party also suggest you should confirm the general secretary so I imagine it will happen obviously I'd love it if he wasn't because he is a terrible general secretary who's purging everyone for political reasons left right and center um, which is very bad for the left, but very bad for British democracy as well. We live in a two-party system. If you can just purge anyone for any arbitrary reason, that's that's terrible. But as I say, I think he will survive. Let's go on to our next story. In the run-up to Labour Party conference, Keir Starmer has given a series of interviews to ITV's regional news teams. And when speaking to ITV in the North East, Starmer was played a clip of voters in Consett, County Durham. Take a look at how he responds. We've been out today to, to Concert County Durham to ask people for their views on your leadership. If I can play you a little bit of that now. Tell me what you think Keir Starmer stands for. Um, don't know. All I know is a Labour leader and that's it. I don't think he's as strong as what he should be. I mean, this guy, um, Boris Johnson, should be giving him a good hate, really. I thought Labour was about you know, all the people, the working class people and that, um, but I'm not too sure. That's what he stands for. What do you make of that? Well, it reinforces my point that in the last 18 months, I've not been able to get out and make the argument in the way I wanted to. What I would ask you to do, next time you're in Darlington, I think on your patch. Concert get, that, that is. Yeah, I know, Darlington. But get, uh, just to give you a, a counterexample, get in Darlington, when you're next there with a camera, go and talk to the taxi rank drivers. Because every time I've been through Darlington, I've been having a conversation. I stopped and talked to them about they were having a really tough time in COVID. I stopped, took the time to talk to them. I actually went back to talk to them two or three weeks later. And they said Boris Johnson got off the train of Darlington and walked right past them without acknowledging them. 
And they said, I stopped, talked to them, heard what they were saying, then came back. Uh, so actually, take your camera, you know, take, uh, that, <laughs> well, I, 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 I you. take this on the chin, take your camera to Darlington to the taxi driver. That was Keir Starmer saying, they might not like me in concert, but if you go to a different nearby town and find two specific taxi drivers who I've spoken to at length, then they will tell you something different. Um, also, the only reason we're expecting them to say something different is because they were impressed that Keir Starmer talked to them twice, apparently, according to this anecdote. Ash, it's, a, it's an interview tactic I, I'm not sure I've seen before in political interviews where they say, these people we spoke to didn't like you. say, well, uh, 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 I've got this one genuine working class reference who happens to be in a, a town somewhere else in Britain who maybe you should interview instead. I mean, it was such a weak response as well, because it wasn't, oh, you might not know this, but I actually spoke to these taxi drivers in Darlington, and this is what I did for them. His whole boast is, I acknowledged the existence of these taxi drivers in Darlington, not once, but on two separate occasions. I spoke to them, and I looked them in their little flinty eyes and everything. Like, it actually comes across as incredibly patronizing and condescending, as if he thinks he's the queen and merely waving out of a motorcade will, you know, make these peasants' days. Um, you know, so I think it was a really weird way to respond to it. I think, though, there is something really interesting in the framing of that entire interview. And I think that this is something which was established in 2019 and is going to keep happening until the left works out how to deal with the fact that its support comes from, and when I say the left, I'm talking about the wider left, you know, really from Jeremy Corbyn all the way up to, I know we're going to talk about him in a second, Wes Streeting. Um, but this problem, which is that the left's core support is coming from, you know, electorally inconvenient concentrations of, you know, under 40s who live in the cities. And now what this whole notion of the red wall and in particular the red wall town has become is a disciplining tool. So you can go out, you can do any old vox pop and you can interview people who predominantly from that video are over 40 years old. And you've got a brilliant video package of people saying exactly why they think you're a prick or why, why you're a failure. And the job of the Labour Party is to go, um, well, I like me, I guess. And that's great. And you don't see the reverse happening, right? So you don't see somebody with a microphone going down to I don't know, Tower Hamlets and going, what do you think about Boris Johnson? Well, obviously people would go, I think he's a prick, I hate him. Um, but it's not used as a disciplining tool in the same way, because when it's framed like this, it's, ah, you don't speak to the country. Now, Keir Starmer's response to that was incredibly weak. It was farcical how silly his response was. Also, it made it sound as if he'd mixed up concert in Darlington. You know, he didn't even say, well, if you go down the road in Darlington, I spoke to at least two taxi drivers on two separate occasions. Um, you know, it sounded almost like he'd mixed it up and he he kind of never recovered from it. But this is a line of questioning and a, a method of delegitimizing progressive politics in this country that ultimately we're all going to have to get a grip on. You can't keep allowing 2019 to be the stick which hits you around the head and you know, you've got a video package of people telling you you're shit and you've got to go, oh yeah, no, I am actually really shit. Um, you've, you've got to come up with a more compelling response. Otherwise, no one's going to vote for you. If you go, oh, yeah, actually, they're right. I am a cunt. Like, why is anybody going to vote for you? Well, the response as well should be, you know, a confident response is to say, well, look, I'm sorry they think that. But I think um, if they were 
to hear our program for the country, what Labour would be offering, and then you list those policies, mm. then uh, I, I, I hope I would be able to change their mind. Instead, he says, well, they might not like me, but these two guys in Darlington do. It's <laughs> <laughs> just sort of like, uh, <laughs> okay, uh, that's, that's fine. Yeah, cause also, cause, that's great. That's good for you. That's good for Darlington. Yeah. I'm happy well, the other thing with A political interview is a chance for you to communicate to the public what you, you know you're trying to change people's minds in that interview and do you seriously think that anyone is going to feel like oh maybe Keir Starmer oh, you know I do tr I do actually trust um taxi drivers in Darlington I mean also these taxi drivers they were probably just being polite right and they, you, you don't expect a taxi driver to say like no you're an idiot you know blah 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 they're probably just being polite to the guy Very do you bizarre. remember in the 2008 presidential election Joe the plumber Yes, but so I can't remember, remember the, the plumber discourse. It was um, when John McCain was sort of trying to prove his like, you know, connection to the blue collar man was telling all these anecdotes about what Joe the plumber said. And then like reporters went out and they found the real Joe the plumber um, who, who, who wasn't, you know, who was going to vote for John McCain. But it was also kind of ridiculous because it was like, I've met somebody who works in a manual profession and they've also proved the perfect vehicle through which I can ventriloquize the things that I already wanted to say. Like there's no clumsy, there's, it's always clumsy when you do that. There's no elegant way to try and pull that off. I think it's always faintly absurd. Mm. The other interesting thing about this particular anecdote is why does Keir Starmer in particular know the taxi drivers in Darlington? Um, he, he, he's seen them at least twice, um, potentially knows them quite well. Uh, it's worth noting the seat of Starmer's former political secretary and key ally and friend, apparently, Jenny Chapman, is in Darlington. Um, we won't delve any further into that particular topic, but she did go on to receive a peerage from Keir Starmer. Um, we're going to go on to our final story. First of all, uh, a tweet not at Tisky Sauer, but some, some news to update you with. This is from Gabriel Pogren from The Times. Hearing Gary Smith of GMB, so he's their general secretary, was generally furious, repeatedly asking Starmer if he appreciated how embarrassing it is for Labour to be backing £10 an hour, not the £15 advocated by his union. So broader grievances dovetailing with anger over reform. Um, so... GMB, we had heard earlier in the week, were inclined to support uh, the Electoral College move. Uh, it was reported, you know, one of the conditions is they wanted to get rid of the Green New Deal and potentially Ed Miliband. I'm not in a position to confirm that. Um, that was a speculation which was circulating. Now, it seems like they're going against Keir Starmer for, for other reasons there. Of course, Labour should be arguing for £15 an hour. That might you know, mean he'd have something to say when he's shown images of people saying he doesn't stand for anything. Um, before we go to our final story, this show is possible because of our supporters. Um, if you already donate the equivalent of one hour's wage a month, thank you so much. You make all of this possible. We are forever grateful. If you do want to set up a direct debit, please do go to supportnavaramedia.com slash support. Um, obviously, you don't have to set up a direct debit. One-off donations are also incredibly welcome. Keir Starmer's attempt to change the rules to elect his successor has led to a lot of speculation as to whether he's considering standing down. And we are already hearing rumours of MPs manoeuvring to replace him. Tisky Sauer viewers, I'm afraid I must inform you 
One of them is apparently where streeting, the register of MPs' interest, shows that in the past year, streeting has raised £45,000 from free wealthy donors. And the Huffington Post has spoken to Labour sources suggesting he's planning a run. They quote a Labour source as saying... People are talking about the West Streeting Leadership Roadshow and whether Keir's office realise it's happening and don't care or don't see that it's happening. He's basically mid-campaign now, even though there is no contest. He is everywhere, doing everything. He's trying to do rounds of union delegation dinners. He looks to be the runner for the right at the moment. This account has been backed up by Owen Jones, who in response to the article tweeted the following... I've been repeatedly briefed that some of Starmer's current and former aides have given up on his prospects and are now pinning their hopes on Wes Streeting, who they hope can be made Labour leader via the Electoral College. For those who are not familiar with Wes Streeting, he is one of the most viciously factional right-wing MPs currently in the Labour Party and the archetype of a career-driven Blairite. Like many right-wingers in the party, Streeting's rise was thanks to organising within Labour students. Their support in 2008 helped him to become president of the National Union of Students, which under his leadership dropped its commitment to abolishing tuition fees. Streeting then went on to work for Progress, Stonewall and PricewaterhouseCoopers before being elected to Parliament in 2015. Once an MP, Streeting became known for committing an inordinate amount of time to sending negative quotes about Jeremy Corbyn to a hostile media. That included in 2016, when on the request of the Bakers Union, Labour banned McDonald's from purchasing a stand at party conference. They'd done that to protest the firm, not recognising the union. Wes Streeting responded with this comment to The Sun on Sunday. I'm exasperated that we should throw away £30,000 worth of sponsorship like this. It smacks of a snobby attitude towards fast food restaurants and people who work or eat at them. McDonald's may not be the trendy falafel bar that some people in politics like to hang out at, but it's enjoyed by families across the country. It's a complete misrepresentation of what was going on. McDonald's was not banned from conference because, they, because the party had negative attitudes about people who eat at McDonald's. It was because the Baker's Union, one of the affiliated unions, was annoyed at McDonald's for not recognizing their union. Completely ridiculous. But why ignore the opportunity to deliver a Murdoch paper, a negative story, even if it ignores the facts. Um, a few more reasons you might recognise where Streeting, he told Sky in the run-up to the 2017 general election that Jeremy Corbyn would not make a good Prime Minister. That was during the election campaign, and he was one of the right-wing media's favourite contacts to call upon when they wanted an MP to say that Corbyn was soft on anti-Semitism. Ash, could Labour's future really be one led by Wes Streeting? I'm sorry, I'm just still really stuck on falafel bar. Like, <laughs> what's a trendy falafel bar? Like, falafel is like, you know, like cheap food, you know, run by somebody's Turkish uncle. You know, it's not... Like a kebab shop, essentially, you isn't know, it? You know, like, do you know what I mean? It's, it's, just, it's just like, a, it's just a veggie kebab. It, you know, they had you had to give them something other than halloumi. Um, and I think it just speaks to, and I know this is a bit off topic, the really um, weird and like psychologically loaded politics of food and food as class signifier that we have in this country. But particularly when like the left is trying to litigate like what constitutes, you know, a proletarian habit, what constitutes a middle class one. 
people start saying ridiculous things like there are trendy falafel bars rather than that's the wrap which you can get for a fiver as opposed to a seven pound you know donna meat one um and you know things like lemon or like feta cheese or like basil become like incredibly exotic and rare rather than something which has become a pretty integral part of the british diet over the last 30 years um but that's really off topic it's just something which i feel very strongly about um i think what this shows is that the labor right truly is out of ideas and all they've got is a set of aesthetic political gestures so we're streeting as somebody who as you said is a career politician he's not somebody who came up through the trade union movement or was a community organizer he's somebody who really committed himself to kind of the most uh, low stakes and factionally vicious politics that exist, i.e. campus politics, and won and was like, okay, I was good at that. I'm going to get into the Labour Party. Um, but what he actually offers in terms of a vision, um, a policy platform, a theory of change or a view of how the world works, it's, it's scanty, flimsy, verging on non-existent. I'm not saying this as a par. I'm just saying that you would have thought that the Labour right, if they were confident of their powers within the party, they perhaps would have been able to call on an MP with a bit more experience, maybe a bit more to say for themselves, a bit more of, I don't know, say a strategist, somebody who who has given politics and, and what they want to do about it, a lot of thinking rather than simply been able to cannily react to various media blow-ups in order to position themselves more favorably uh, in the eyes of, you know, the country's political editors uh, and, you know, current affairs producers. You know, it doesn't, it doesn't speak to me of a, a hugely confident Labour right, if that's their guy. Um, let, let's, let's go to another story about money, which is the same story. Um, I said that Wes Streeting has got £45,000 in the last year. Um, it's interesting to see who that money is from. Um, so according to the Register of Interests, Anthony Watson, who is a financial services entrepreneur, donated £15,000. He had previously bankrolled the Owen Smith campaign when he challenged Corbyn. £20,000 was from Francesca Perrin. She runs something called the Indigo Trust, which is part of the Sainsbury Family Philanthropy Network. And £10,000 was from Lord Waheed Ali, a media entrepreneur. Very interestingly, of the £45,000 donated this year, £40,000 was in August. So £40,000 in a single month. What does Wes know that we don't? Luckily, if there is a leadership election, I own a video which could tank the whole thing. Let's take a look. Ready? Oh, Jeremy Corbyn! Everyone changed their tune after that 2017 general election, didn't they? They've been saying, oh, he couldn't possibly win. He does very well. Finally, they come round to it and, and talk about, oh, potentially he, he was a good leader. Obviously, they memory hold that. Now, no one is allowed to talk about 2017 ever again. Um, Ash, we're obviously Corbyn supporters, but can you imagine um, the Conservatives putting Wes Streeting singing, oh, Jeremy Corbyn into some kind of attack ad? He's going to be running as the guy who was publicly opposed to Jeremy Corbyn and therefore not tainted by 2019. 
Yeah, I mean, maybe. But that, that's the thing, is that it has also been an attack line which is used on Keir Starmer, which is now you're turning your back on Jeremy Corbyn. Didn't you fight a general election saying he's the right guy to be PM? And that's the, that's the problem with these politicians who really try and distinguish themselves by how not Jeremy Corbyn they really are. Well, you went into two general elections uh, with that guy as your party leader. Um, you know, you stood on his policy platform. And in West Streeting's case, you sang, oh, Jeremy Corbyn with Navarra Media's very own Michael Walker. Um, so so what changed? Um, it, it does look, I think, self-serving and hypocritical. Um, but, you know, look how happy he looked in that video. I, I think you sort of unlocked his authentic self. He just wants to be a fun Corbynista out in the sunshine with you, Michael. He doesn't want to be a Blairite taking swipes at imaginary falafel bars. You know, you had him living his best life. One looks happy when they're standing close to me at London Pride. I don't think we can read too much politically into that. Um, there is one reason that Wes Streeting standing in a leadership election could be good. is because if Clive Lewis, who is another sort of standout option to stand in any future leadership election stands. We could relive, relitigate this legendary Twitter interaction from 2013. This is when Clive Lewis and West Treating were both prospective parliamentary candidates. Clive Lewis says, Blair and Miliband split over future of Labour. Tony baby, stick your fluffy Xmas cards you had your chance. Stick to your fluffy Xmas cards. You had your chance. Where Streeting says, didn't agree with a raft of Blair policies or aspects of his article, but surprised to read such a puerile tweet from a PPC. Clive Lewis responds, if you don't like, don't follow, you jumped up turd. <laughs> <laughs> I should say Clive Lewis was initially sharing a, a Blair article, I think, or an article about his comments. Um, can you imagine that in the ne next hustings? I, you know what? I would like a bit more of that. You know, I kind of can't stand the kind of disingenuous politeness of hustings where everyone really hates each other and also themselves. Give me a little bit more of calling each other a jumped up turd, you know, like some honesty in it. They should let Navarra, because if Navarra Media did the hustings, then we could really like prong at that. So we sort of like, so Clive, I know, I know you think you'd be a better leader than Wes Streeting, but do you still stand by your comments that he's a jumped up turd? Um, I wonder how he'd respond. Just say yes, that would make people really respect him. Yes, and that's why he shouldn't be Labour leader, and I should. We're going to wrap up there. Thanks for all of you for joining us on this Friday evening. Tiski Sal will be back as normal on Monday. But across this weekend, we will be at the World Transformed in Brighton. When this stream ends, you'll be thrown over to the stream for tomorrow's discussion on the Tories. Ash, I want to get you to describe who is going to be on that panel. You'll be hosting that one on Saturday night. Oh, we have got a real treat for you tomorrow. So the discussion topic is, has Boris blown it? The two years of his premiership have been marked by lurching from crisis to crisis. Remarkably resilient poll ratings, but also a surprise by-election loss in Chesham and Amersham. So with me to discuss the future of the Conservative Party are James Medway, former advisor to John McDonnell, a political editor of Galdem, uh, Moya Lothian-McLean, and we even have a token right winger for you. We have got the Mail on Sunday's very own 
Dan Hodges. So make sure you come to the talk if you happen to be in Brighton. And if for whatever reason you're not, tune in on here, same place, this website, this news organization. There's only one. (laughs) That is going to be unmissable for my panel on Sunday night. We're going to be talking about whether or not Labour is dead. Is there still any hope for socialists in the Labour Party? To discuss that, we have someone who knows more than anyone else, I think, probably, about the machinations inside of the party. It's Carrie Murphy, who was Corbyn's chief of staff. We'll also have Thelma Walker, who was one of those people who made the jump. She was a Labour MP, then she stood for the Northern Independence Party. And we've got Clive Lewis, someone I just mentioned as a potential future leader, who I assume will be arguing for a progressive alliance, a sort of a third way for socialists. If you stay tuned in a moment, you'll be able to set a reminder for tomorrow's stream. For now, you've been watching Tisky Sour on Navarra Media. Good night. This broadcast is brought to you by Navarra Media. Go to navaramedia.com slash support.